0: In this episode, we're talking Mingi, or maybe Minji. Hello. So for this episode, I'm joined by two of the authors of a recent position paper on mitochondrial neurogastrointestinal encephalomyopathy or MINGI, Dr. Michio Hirano of the Department of Neurology, Columbia University Irving Medical Center, New York, and Dr. Rita Rinaldi of the Institute of Neurological Science in Bologna. Thank you both for joining me.
1: I'm very happy to participate in this podcast. Thank you.
0: Yes, thank you as well. We love papers like this in the journal. Managing rare disease can be so difficult, it's important to have clear definitions and an evidence-based approach. I'm just a general pediatrician, so I wonder if you could begin briefly by explaining to me what Minji actually is.
2: Okay. Uh, Minji is a autosomal recessive ultra-rare disease. It's caused by mutations in the TYMP or TIMP gene, TIMP encodes a cytosolic enzyme called thymidine phosphorylase. And in this disease, loss of thymidine phosphorylase or TP activity leads to toxic accumulations of the nucleosides thymidine and deoxyuridine. Those toxins are incorporated by mitochondria and cause nucleotide pool imbalances leading to mitochondrial DNA replication errors. Clinically, that manifests in uh, patients that begin to manifest symptoms anywhere from childhood through adulthood. And the predominant symptoms are gastrointestinal with severe gastrointestinal dysmotility. They also have loss of extraocular muscle functions, so they develop ptosis and ophthalmoplegia, and they develop severe peripheral neuropathy, and MRI reveals uh, leukoencephalopathy that's often asymptomatic.
1: I'm a clinician, I'm a neurologist, and I work in a very big hospital in Northern Italy. And so in past uh, 10 years, uh, I met uh, some patients uh, with the Mingi, and I uh, realized that diagnosis is often late. And patients, uh, when a diagnosis is made, uh, often are in a very bad condition. They are frequently misdiagnosed as having uh, inflammatory bowel disease or anorexia nervosa and diagnosis is really late in, in this case when health condition are so poor that uh, therapeutic choices may be really difficult. The idea of organizing a consensus conference was therefore born with the aim of improving the management of this disease, providing an evidence-based guidance for clinicians, including patient point of view. And for clinicians, is very important to have it. The fact that it was a need for everyone was demonstrated by the great enthusiasm that experts show were invited to the consensus. And they want to really take part to this experience together with patients and their families.
0: I think it is so important with these rare conditions to have uh, that inflammation for clinicians and I know that we often hear about these difficult diagnostic journeys that patients go on to reach the correct diagnosis. As you say, this was born of Consensus Conference that was held in Bologna early in 2019 um, and at the meeting you had expert working groups looking at three key areas, diagnosis, prognosis and treatment. It should be said that the management of complex disease doesn't always begin at diagnosis, but I think it's worth starting there today. What did you agree about the diagnostic criteria for MIMG? Because you obviously said it can be mistaken for anorexia and inflammatory bowel disease. So what does one need to look for to make the diagnosis?
2: Well, the diagnosis is challenging because it is a ultra rare disease and not well known to the clinical community. And it's very challenging early in the disease when there may be just one or two management manifestations. So uh, it's important to begin uh, by suspecting the disease and then to do clinical diagnostic testing to Examine the various potential clinical manifestations. So, one can do studies of the gastrointestinal dysmotility with swallow studies and gastric emptying studies. One has to do nerve conduction studies to look for peripheral neuropathy. And brain MRI often discloses leukoencephalopathy, which can be very mild or patchy initially and, and become more confluent. Once the clinical manifestations are characterized and one has a suspicion of the disease, the initial screening test is typically a Genetic screening for TYMP or TIP mutations. If one or two variants of uncertain significance are identified, further biochemical testing can be done to confirm the diagnosis by measuring TP activity in Buffy Coat and identifying a very low activity, or measuring plasma levels of thymidine and deoxyuridine, which are typically
0: very high in, in these patients. I just wanted to come back to the. Rita had said she was seeing patients who had been diagnosed having inflammatory bowel disease or anorexia. When should we be looking at those patients a bit harder and saying, could this be something else?
2: Well, if there are other clinical manifestations that are not typical of those disorders, such as the ptosis and ophthalmoplegia, peripheral neuropathy, which is demyelinating and and not uh, due to nutritional deficiency, one should suspect this disease. And and especially if there's a family history, because it is recessive, there may be a a sibling with uh, similar or different uh, manifestations of the same disease. So these can be clues.
0: So if we move on from diagnosis, the next major area of concentration was prognosis. What can you tell me about the natural history of this disease?
1: The onset is around 18 years of age uh, with gastrointestinal and neurological symptoms and weight loss. And weight loss uh, may be also with normal food intake. Symptoms accumulate and worsen over time and uh, frequently we observe the phases of rapid worsening that generally occurs before the age of 40, and that's uh, especially for low gastrointestinal or hepatic complication or cachexia. During the consensus conference, a clinical and instrumental assessment of the disease course was suggested, and uh, milestones uh, indicating disease progression were identified, such as uh, gastrointestinal subocclusive episodes, or need of gastrostomy, or need for parenteral nutrition, or aspiration pneumonia, or episodes of sepsis, for example, and liver cirrhosis. These are the main aspects that we underline for the prognosis
0: aspect. This isn't our first podcast on mitochondrial disease, and I'm sure it won't be our last. We've heard about the challenges in treatment and trialing new treatments. What did your group agree about treatment in this disease?
2: So uh, in addition to the symptomatic treatments that Rita mentioned, uh, there are some potential disease-modifying treatments. In the short term, dialysis, either with uh, peritoneal dialysis uh, can be instituted to reduce the levels of these toxic uh, nucleosides, thymidine deoxyridine. In addition, there's an experimental erythrocyte encapsulated thymidine phosphorylase, a kind of enzyme replacement therapy that's offered by Dr. Bridget Brax's group on an experimental basis in London. In addition, uh, platelets infusions have been used, but that's uh, not really clinically effective because the infusions are limited due to antibody production. So th- these are the short-term therapies. More permanent restoration of thymidine phosphorylase activity can be achieved through transplantation, either through bone marrow or allogeneic hematopoietic stem cell transplantation or through liver transplantations. Both of these transplant procedures are very stressful for these medically compromised patients. So one has to evaluate the patients carefully, assess the potential donors, and weigh the the potential risks and benefits uh, because there are certainly uh, high risks of, of particularly with the hematopoietic stem cell transplantation. I should mention also there's a biotechnology company that's working on an
0: enzyme replacement therapy but that is still uh, early and in the developmental stage at this point. I think transplant is always a bit of a, a difficult one because you have to wait for disease progression to justify the significance of the procedure but if you wait too long then you've got your patient who's not well enough to tolerate the transplant so it's very much a A bit of a double edged sword, isn't it?
2: Oh, absolutely, yes. As we had similar experiences with uh, hematopoietic stem cell transplants, and out of the first 24 patients who had transplants, a little less than 40% had successful transplants, and and they did well, but the mortality was unacceptably high because the patients, many of them, were too ill to really
0: uh, undergo the, the, the transplants in retrospect. It's always disappointing to hear, but I'm assuming that the outcomes are improving now.
2: Oh, yes. The patients who had successful transplants had uh, remarkable biochemical improvements as well as clinical
0: improvements that were quite
2: striking. And similarly, we have less experience with the liver transplants, but the patients are showing some clinical improvements as well as the biochemical improvements. So we're very encouraged by the early uh, results of the liver transplants, but we have longer experience with the uh, bone marrow and
0: metabolic stem cell transplants. I think it's fantastic you achieved so much at the conference in just two days. It's quite hard to imagine getting that many people in a room uh, these days, at least not without masks on. What are the, the limitations, if any, of this work?
1: It was two days of hard and enthusiastic work, but behind these two days... Uh, there uh, had been about one year of reparation, during which, uh, following the method suggested by the NIH Consensus Development uh, Program methodology, at the first step, uh, a technical committee and a scientific committee were identified. Three main topics uh, on uh, diagnosis, uh, prognosis uh, and treatment, uh, and questions to be addressed uh, were defined and assigned to the three working groups of experts. Each working group received by the technical committee a systematic literature review to be studied and discussed. And at the same time, a consensus development panel was set up, ensuring the participation of all clinical and non-clinical stakeholders, including patients. And this uh, is very important. The involvement of the patient from the first phases of the preparation was one of the strengths of this consensus conference. And so after about 12 months, we were ready to do the consensus. And um, yes, we believe that is throughout this kind of meeting that we can share knowledge and projects. And so...
2: We we were very happy of it. Rita did a terrific job in organizing this conference. Uh, The clinicians are very dedicated to this disease. This is a very compelling disease because it's a disease that's so devastating for the patients, but yet we have very promising therapies. Uh, So we are very excited, and I think that led to the high turnout, as well as Rita's uh, excellent organization. The enthusiasm of the clinicians this um, uh, condition was quite obvious and and reflected in the conference.
0: It's a fantastic piece of work and it's very useful, I think, for clinicians uh, the world over who are going to encounter these patients and we seem wonderful to hear about the involvement of patient groups in in things that we're doing as well. Thank you both so much for your time. If you'd like to find out more, you can find the article on the Journal of Inherited Metabolic Disease website. Just search for position paper on diagnosis, prognosis and treatment by the MENGIE International Network. And if you'd like to hear more from us, then check out our SoundCloud or subscribe to JRD Podcast wherever you like to listen and spread the word. Uh, thank you, Dr. Hirano and Dr. Rinaldi. Thank, thank you. you. It's our okay. pleasure.
2: Well done.
0: And thank you for listening. Until next time, goodbye.